Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. Our guest today is Ron Phillips. Ron is the Senior Vice President of Human Resources, Retail and Enterprise Modernization for CVS Health, and esteemed board member of TLD Group. CVS Health is currently the largest pharmacy healthcare provider in the United States, with approximately 300,000 employees located across all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. Currently number five on the Fortune 500, CVS has been a champion of integrated healthcare with nearly 10,000 retail pharmacy locations, 1,100-minute clinics, and through the acquisition of Aetna in 2018, 23 million medical benefit members. Ron is a unique specialist in the art of strategy, collaboration, and interpersonal skills, and he intertwines these skills in everything he delivers and achieves. Known for his innovative approach, influence, and emotional intelligence, he has successfully delivered innovative human resources, change management, process improvement, and business results for the last 25 years. Over the course of his impressive career, Ron has led multiple organizations through the daunting task of successful reorganization. His leadership positions these companies as employers of choice through people-first strategies. Prior to joining CVS Health, Ron served as Chief People Officer for Carnival Cruise Line, Chief Human Resources Officer for New York Presbyterian Hospital, Senior Vice President of Human Resources for Comcast, Ron has served on several boards, including Stepping Stone Scholars, Multicultural Affairs Congress, African American History Museum of Philadelphia, National Association of African Americans and Human Resources, National Association of Multi-Ethnicity and Communications, and Make-A-Wish Foundation. Ron is a graduate of Virginia State University, where he received his BA in Sociology and Administration of Justice. He later pursued and completed the requirements for a Juris Doctorate at the University of Richmond School of Law. Welcome to the podcast, Ron. Thanks a lot for allowing me the opportunity to participate. Uh, thrilled and excited to be here. Thank you very much for joining us today. At TLD Group, we believe that we've arrived at a pivotal moment in time, one that we hope will inspire America to engage in a conversation around how we, as individuals and organizations and as a nation can and must do better. Centuries of inequality and racism have culminated into acutely horrific consequences for Black Americans in 2020. The systemic nature and complexity of this challenge makes it impossible for any one organization or sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem collaborative mindset is important for our industry to ultimately create greater impact and move the needle. Solutions with emphasize how the various sectors, such as hospitals and health systems, pharmaceutical companies, payers, policymakers, local governments, community organizations, etc., operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on meaningful systemic change and equality for all. So I want to start with you, Ron, with a general question. We are seeing people in the streets protesting over police brutality. We have over 42 million people unemployed out there right now, and the numbers are probably much higher. And we have a global pandemic. 
what should healthcare leaders be focusing on now, given these tremendous challenges? I think about your question. I think about what physical distancing has done for us. It's in place for many of us. And I think it's critical now more than ever to check in on your team. Uh, something as simple as how are you doing today can go a long way. Uh, I know that it means a lot to me when people have reached out to me and I can see the impact when I reach out to others, just check in and say, how you doing? How are things going? And I can see the relief and almost seeing people have the opportunity to exhale. To your point, I think people are dealing with a whole host of things. Some people may want to delve into a conversation about what they're working through. Some may be dealing with some heavy issues, but may not want to talk. And some may be just fine. That simple question, I think, makes space for them to engage how and when and if they want to. And I think I've, I know I've given that advice quite a bit over the last few weeks. I also add that self-care is critically important. Uh, as leaders, we're also people. And we're personal caregivers, we're parents, we're siblings, we're community members, et cetera. And we're quick to make sure that we're taking care of everyone else as we should, but we can't do that unless we take care of ourselves. So here again, and I think this metaphor works better now than ever, put the mask on yourself first, and then you can begin to take care of others. And so self-care is gonna be critically important in this tumultuous time. I, I think that's a, a brilliant response to a very heady, uh, question and conversation. Um, you know, I, I wonder, Ron, you know, I think people in general are just so overwhelmed. There's so much going on today that the simple advice of taking a step back and asking people how they're doing is so powerful. And we sometimes forget because there's so many challenges that need to be solved immediately that we tend to go into drive mode. And so the reminder is, uh, I know for me in particular, it's, a, it's, it's really impactful for me to hear you say that. Um, and to also say that self-care is important. And I know that you, you know, as leaders within organizations today that impact healthcare, um, that's not so easy to do, right? <laughs> we, we, can, we can dish out the advice, but we don't necessarily take it ourselves. So um, very, very helpful. And I appreciate that. And you almost have to have discipline about it because What's happening, what's happened over the past six months can be overwhelming, it can be paralyzing. You know, I think personally by my own experience, you know, when we kicked out 2020 with Kobe Bryant's death, that, that struck me and it just, it took me to my core and I don't know why, but it just did. And then to follow that up with a global pandemic, you know, what was it, the early 1900s we had the Spanish flu? So who would have thought a global pandemic and then our response to that pandemic and what it did to our economy. And then after that, you had the George Floyd situation. And so people typically would get fed by watching the news, but the news becomes overwhelming. You know, talking to colleagues, it becomes overwhelming. So that's why I feel very strongly, you've got to take that step back and figure out what kind of refuels you, how can you kind of let some of that pressure go, and then start to think constructively about what can I do as a leader? What can I impact? What's within my circle of influence? and then begin to make steps towards that. I think that's wonderful. I really do. And I think as a leader, helping others on your team, your direct reports, your peers, help to narrow the focus because I, I think it is debilitating when you can't 
find something that's tangible to work on. Um, so those conversations, having those types of coaching conversations is also a strategy. I know that you use that because I, I know you're an incredible leader. Um, any other strategies? I, I think the other thing too is uh, you also have to recognize that, and this is hard to say, but everybody's not in the same place, right? And, and the, the metaphor I've heard used is we all have, and I think that's sometimes unfortunate, but the reality is we all don't see these issues the same way and operate within our respective bubbles. And we've got to begin to open up, and as we say, open up the aperture to hear other points of views and to really begin to think critically about what's happening in the world today and how can I possibly impact that. But we've got to understand that people aren't always coming from the same place. So what I think may be cathartic and helpful for some leaders, uh, some leaders may look and say, I'm tired of talking about this. Why don't we continue talking about this? Um, while others will embrace it and feel a sense of relief. And so you've got to figure out where do you go. But I think one thing you can't do is let fear paralyze you from having any kind of conversation. I think you've got to open up that conversation. I think that's uh, that's brilliant. I really do. And, and I'll tell you, just from a personal perspective, Ron, um, having conversations with leaders like you, with staff, with coaches, um, has been eye-opening difficult and incredibly impactful for me as a human being. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think you're right, you need to ask permission and um, meet people where they are and that's where the, the value is in relationship and diversity of perspective and I'm a, a, I'm a big fan of, of that approach. I do, I do wanna pivot a little bit. So in terms of the work that you do within your organization, you're an incredible leader and manager, that I know. That I know for sure. Um, what role do you think healthcare leaders can or should play in raising awareness of inequities and building political will to address them? I think, I think first and foremost, you, you've got to make sure that you understand yourself what those inequities are, the history behind those inequities, what are the barriers to breaking through them. Uh, I think this can be done through any of the masses of content that's available out there. Um, so I think the first step is to kind of inform and understand what are those inequities and almost look through the lens of those folks that are on the other side of those inequities, right? Um, I think a lot of people are learning informally through listening sessions and things of that nature. Um, our workforces are products of the community. Um, and so I think there's a wealth of information among your own teams to really get insight into answering the question first, what are those inequities? Uh, my caution though, is to not put the burden of educating you or your organizations on the very people who are impacted by these inequities, right? Many, especially in the black community, have expressed that they're exhausted. <laughs> you know, they're tired of years of not being heard and now being constantly and consistently asked to explain what they've been saying repeatedly for years, but to no avail. And so you've got to come at those conversations in the right way. Um, I also think that when you have those listening sessions, you've got to make sure you put in the work to understand and learn ahead of time and leverage these opportunities for those who want to express themselves and to be heard, and then leave those sessions with a renewed commitment to what you will do to address systemic racism and inequality. I think that those are some of the, the initial things that leaders can do in raising awareness. I think that's, I think that's great. In fact, I was going to ask um, for specific advice to that end. So, I do see that a lot of companies are putting out dialogues and listening tours. Um, and I wonder what 
what is it? So, so leaders are educating themselves, obviously, on Black history. We educate ourselves on the history. What then is the right approach in terms of having the conversation? Is it your experience? What is your experience? Or is it past that? Hopefully I'm answering the question directly, but as I listen to the question, I think about a number of things. One, I think that there are many companies out there that are rushing to check the box. Yeah. And they're rushing to make symbolic gestures to say, hey, I'm a great company and I believe in diversity. And so they're writing checks or they're doing things of that nature. I think having those listening sessions, and it's about the experience of the people that you're having their listening sessions with, but it's also about what are those things that are systemic in your organization, right? What are your hiring practices? What are your development practices? Who gets to go to high potential programs? What happens to leaders of colors when they come out of those high potential programs? Are they getting promoted? Um, thinking through all of those pieces, those systemic pieces, not just do folks feel good, right? Inclusion is critically important, but it's more around there is objective criteria that shows what your organization is about and how your organization, um, how they think about these type of things. And trust me, when you have these listening tools, you're going to hear, you know, from the perspective of those that feel disenfranchised, and they're going to give you great insight about how they experience the organization. And then you've got to take action, right? The, the most meaningful piece is not just symbolic action. I believe symbolism is important because it drives motivation and morale and things of that nature. But you also have to take concrete action on here are the steps we're going to take to move this organization forward in this space. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Is there any role that you think organizations can play in moving the political will in the right direction? Yeah, that's tough, right? Because um, here again, the, 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 the example I used earlier is that we all come from different tribes, right? And yeah. so organizations sometimes are reluctant to take that political stand, but some have, right? And so I think that those that are comfortable doing that will step out and say, here's what we stand for, here's what our values are, and then we can help, you know, drive the narrative, engage our, not just our, uh, colleagues and employees, but our leaders and our customers and so and patients in a certain way. But that's a needle that's got to be threaded because I think so many organizations are risk averse. And I applaud those organizations that are willing to stand up and say, here's what we believe in. And you can see how they drive the politics by policies and processes that they put in place in their own organization, right? Things that they recognize, how they go about uh, engaging their employees. I think that does more than any political statement that folks will make. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I feel as if it's almost a perfect storm when you think about the generation that's coming up and their value proposition for them in terms of employment is I want to work for a company that supports the types of issues that are important to me. So I think naturally what's going to happen is that we will start to see leaders as they grow up the ranks paying more attention to the way in which government runs, maybe bringing action committees to their organizations so that there is involvement and to support certain amendments and certain referendums, et cetera. So I, I, think, that there, I think there is going to be more political awareness from organizations that uh, will support change initiatives that align to the vision of their companies. Oh, yeah, and here's the insight that I would provide to C-suite folks, boards, and others that listen to this podcast. 
Uh, we give millennials a hard time, but I, I promise you, millennials are real clear that what the company stands for is critically important to if they're going to work for that organization. And so gone are the times when you can say these are our values and they're really platitudes on the wall, right? Millennials and others, colleagues are starting to ask fundamental questions about, we say this is what we stand for. Is that accurate? How do our actions support that? And so my encouragement to anyone listening to the podcast is take the time to look through those values of your organization and ask critically hard questions about how do these values show up day to day for all of our colleagues? And if you can't answer that question forthrightly, then that's your work for the next six to 12 months is to really dig into that and ask. And so when you take the feedback from the listening tours and you do that real forensic analysis around your values, I think that you'll come up with your action plan and it should be pretty clear. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent point. So we, we talk a lot at TLD Group about the movement from competition to collaboration in order to make actionable change a reality. So let's, let's pivot the conversation a little bit about systemic injustice in healthcare. And I want to take you through some questions that are related to our health ecosystem model. So from uh, the perspective of envisioning a new, more positive and equitable future, what might a racially equitable and just future for healthcare look like? How do you envision that? I, I love this question because I get to talk a little bit about CVS. Right. <laughs> right? So, because this is what our mission is all about. Uh, you know, we talk about we are here to help people on their path to better health. And so I just want to break that down to help people on their path to better health. Not affluent people, not to certain kinds of people. We are here to help all people on their path to better health. And so that means bringing to bear all of the assets that make up, say, companies like CVS Health, right? To break down barriers to access, uh, barriers to affordable quality healthcare, uh, whether it's being where people need us the most. You know, you think about 10,000 stores, so that opens up a lot of access to healthcare. We continue to provide free health screenings through Project Health, expanding our capabilities through our new health hub model. If you haven't been in a health hub, please visit one. I think it'll blow you away. But also we're doing more than that. I think about, you've got to figure out all of those other pieces that impact equitable access to healthcare. And so things like we're investing in affordable housing because we, it's going to be clear that your zip code has as much an impact on your health as your genetic code, right? Or even home dialysis for those with mobility challenges. We're committed to make sure that we leverage the power of our scale, our power, our scope, and our local footprint to bring a broad spectrum of need to when and where people need folks the most. So I think that CVS, but there are tons of examples of other organizations out there that are kind of going down a similar path. But I think that that's a really strong example of how we open it up and address inequality in healthcare. Thank you, Ron. Let's move, down, move on to the next area that the Helm model discusses, which is around aligning stakeholders. How does one go about getting the right people to the table to make systemic change in healthcare? Yeah, you know, it's funny. All of your questions, I always end up starting from the center, right? Well, I would say here, start within your own networks. Start with your friends, your family. Regardless of your specific role in the organization, I think we all contribute to the organization's ability to serve those who need us. If you belong to professional organizations, asking the question of what they can do to address inequality and injustice, be the one to ask that question. Be the one to force that dialogue instead of folks just moving the agenda. I also think that 
Here again, social media gets a bad tag, but we are so connected through social channels now more than ever before. And so how hard would it be to convene a group on LinkedIn, uh, that network to have a cross company or even multi-industry discussion on the topic? Um, and so the question, and this is from the old civil rights movement of the 60s, you know, they, they ask the question over again, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? And so I would say now is the time for everyone to be engaging folks to bring them to the table. But I would say start at the center and start to expand outside that center and start mm -hmm. to bring people to the dollar. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And, and, and anybody can be a leader, right? Anybody can lead these types of changes um, and take a step forward. You don't have to necessarily have the formal uh, title or formal authority to begin to move the needle. Yeah, we, we lead everywhere, right? So. You know, we think of leader in a traditional sense of direct reports and that leadership or some type of hierarchical structure. But the reality is we lead in our church, synagogue, mosque. We lead within our families, with our kids, our children. We lead in our communities. There are so many different opportunities. Hey, the first thing you lead is yourself, right? So there's so many ways to lead. So I think everyone's a leader. And I think with leadership comes that significant responsibility to do so. So, so we talked a little bit about, you know, what a just future could look like, and you, you explained some of the initiatives that CBS Health is undertaking with partners. Then we talked a little bit about aligning stakeholders and how one goes about doing so, and it really is, you know, identifying, reaching out, and beginning to convene. When those things occur, we typically would face some obstacles along the way, because when you're bringing in diverse people and diverse perspectives, there may be roadblocks. So my question for you is, in your opinion, why haven't we made more progress in addressing inequities in our healthcare system? Is it because of these boundaries and obstacles and are they real or are they, are, are they issues that we can with effort overcome? Oh, I, I think they're very real. I also don't think we have enough time to go through all of the obstacles and barriers, but I think about the effect of interpersonal, institutional, and systemic biases and policies, practices, structural inequities, and the sorting of people. You sort people into resource-rich or resource-poor neighborhoods, K-12 schools largely on the basis of race and socioeconomic status. I was watching something the other day that said we are more segregated today than they were prior to Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. That is amazing to me. But it says something about the structural nature of racism. Those structural inequities give rise to large and preventable differences in health metrics, such as life expectancy, with research indicating that one zip code is more important to health than one's genetic code. I talked about that earlier. And so those are the things that I think about that come to mind. Um, healthcare reform, I've heard that for the past 30 years, right? We've talked a lot about healthcare reform, and I think it's been so incremental because I think that there are powerful forces that want healthcare to remain the way it is. And so it's been very difficult to break down some of those barriers and some of those obstacles. I think about the consequences of removing provisions from national healthcare policy. You see that in the politics today. Those healthcare policies protect people with pre existing conditions. And it is, it, it blows my mind that we're actually having that conversation in 2020 about eliminating those provisions. But that just shows you what you're up against, right? Around 27% of non-elderly adults have pre-existing conditions. Racial and ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented in that group. And we are seeing, especially over the last few years, the weakening of protections for patients. 
those are things that just immediately come to mind. But I do feel a sense of hope and optimism because what's happened over the last two or three months is different than I've seen. And you're starting to see people really move beyond the noise that's out there to ask fundamental questions around systemic racism. And I think here again, now is the time for folks to continue to demand change and keep driving. That was a long answer, but uh, that's kind of what was in my head. And hopefully I answered your question. You, you, you did answer my question and the circuitous route was actually very helpful. I, I'm curious about the fact that over the course of four months, let's say from February to June, large ships, <laughs> I'm reminding you of your time at Carnival Cruise Lines, were yeah, able yeah, to, exactly. turn, to turn on a dime and get things done, right? There were no barriers inside organizations of running with telemedicine or building a hospital to, to deal with the overflow. These things happened quickly. People didn't ask about hierarchy. Their bureaucracy just went out the window. How can we maintain the speed at which we can, we can get things done and not go back to the bureaucratic way of doing things when we know that when we can act fast and agile, we can really get things done. What's your, what's your recommendation? For it's funny, uh, as you were talking and you were uh, positioning the question, the phrase that popped in my head is comfort is the enemy of change, right? Because no matter how woke we feel and no matter how progressive we think we are, we're also very comfortable sometimes. And in order to push, what really COVID did for us was crisis, right? COVID, those walls, of territorialism, those walls, those silos fell quickly. And then you saw collaboration at such a high level between companies. I think about the number of head of HR calls that I've been on over the past two months with every kind of group you could imagine and the learnings and the sharing of information. And I think your question is the right one. How do you keep that momentum? How do you maintain it? I know at CBS, we're talking about it every day. The learnings and the expedience of which we've been able to move how do you keep that operating rhythm? How do you embed that in your operating rhythm? And what are those learnings? And so we're certainly doing, you know, the debriefs around it. I think organizations have to do that. I think they have to do a comparative analysis around what was the world like pre-COVID? How did decisions get made? What were the barriers to getting decisions done? Things that used to take six months in a pilot, 18 months to execution, now we're done in three days, right? And so yeah. how do you that and make that happen? And so. I think it's just focus. I think a lot of times we've got to take the energy and focus on what did we learn? How do we incorporate some of those learnings into our everyday? Because my fear is, I don't think we'll ever go back to where we were, but I think there will be a retrenchment right back to some of where we were. And I think that that will do a disservice to us making real positive changes. I totally agree with you. And to that end, in the model, we talked about acting and learning. So for healthcare leaders looking to make an impact during this time, what immediate action step do you recommend that they take? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's what you guys, what you talk about in your organization all the time, and that's collaboration. I think it's uh, the public health and the medical communities need to join with other sectors. I think they need to form policy advocacy coalitions around factors that promote social mobility, basic environmental protections, transit, healthcare, education, I think all of those things will lower the overall levels of socioeconomic inequality. And so I think that that's where those groups have to come together. And operating in those silos, you just can't do that anymore. So 
my encouragement is think through those basic topics and how do you bring those groups together and form those policy advocacy coalitions. Excellent, excellent. So Ron, I have known you for a long time and seen you in multiple different industry groups, but my last question for you is one that I pose to every podcast interviewee. So I'll do this in regard to the health industry. What do you want your legacy to be as a leader within this wonderful industry in which you serve today? Wow, that, that is a hard question. <laughs> I think about legacy and a lot of times when I think about my own legacy, I think about impact. And what's the, it's two words that always come to mind, impact and value, right? What's the impact that my leadership is bringing to this industry? What's the impact my leadership is bringing to this company? What's the value that I'm bringing? And I want to be able to walk away you know, I don't mind sharing, you know, my, my daughter had a bone marrow transplant a couple of years ago. And, you know, I was intimately involved over the past eight years with the healthcare systems and saw the fragmentation, but also saw the greatness of healthcare. And I just think that there's so much more upside. And so bringing humanity, bringing us to focus on the people. And I love it looking through my HR lens, right? Because I think I can focus on how do we impact colleagues, how do we impact leadership to make a significant impact to results and outcome and, and the things that we hold dear in the healthcare industry? So I, I think it's impact value. And I think the third word I would bring up is humanity. Ron, it's for three of the reasons why I appreciate you as a colleague and friend. And I have so enjoyed seeing your leadership in all of the companies that we've worked together in. You really are quite a superstar, and it's been an honor interviewing you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's very kind of words. I'm going to have to take that and send that to my mom. <laughs> Those kind of words. Very kind of words. Uh, of course, Ron. Thank you very, very much. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.